Ladies and gentlemen, God gave his best for our salvation. We grew up memorizing John 3.16. For God so loved, an adverb of manner, to tell to what degree he loved that he gave the only son he had of that kind, his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In the book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 32, when Paul wrote that great letter, he asked, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? It does not, it cannot, it will not get any better than God gave. It is the case then that we need to give our best in service to God. The sentiment is expressed by Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. And South Georgia, we would have said, put everything you have into it. Perhaps you've heard the statement, if it's worth doing at all, it's worth doing well. I have long contended that if a man made up his mind that he wanted to go to hell, and I don't know why anybody would make up his mind to do that. But should he do that, he ought to go there with all his might. And certainly, if we want to go to heaven, we ought to give it our best. In Philippians 3 and verse 14, Paul said, I press on toward the mark of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. When an individual steps out of the world and into Christ, he's stepping up. It is a challenge. It is an encouragement. And yet it is a promotion. And he ought to give his best. David wanted to build a house for Jehovah God. Nathan, his friend, first of all said, well, go ahead. That's a good idea. But Jehovah said, you go back and you tell David you spoke before you had authority and you tell him he cannot build that house. And then David set about getting everything ready for Solomon to build the house. But in your Bibles, in First Chronicles chapter 22 and in verse 5, I love the attitude of David. He said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender. And the house that is to be built for Jehovah is to be magnificent. And it's to be that way in comparison to anything else in all the nations. Magnificent. It is to be, David is saying, so good that I'm going to prepare, and the text says that he prepared in abundance 
for Solomon to be able to build that house. Now, David, you can't build it. I know a lot of people who would have pouted over that and said, I'll not lift my finger then. Not David. David loved God. David appreciated what God had done. David was a man after God's own heart. And David said, I am to give God my best. That was his attitude in the chapter just before, chapter 21, verse 24. When he said, when offered a parcel, I will not offer unto Jehovah that which cost me nothing. And the attitude is, I want to give my best. I read that Queen Mary used to go to Scotland every summer. She was so loved by the people that she could walk around the countryside without an escort. One day when she was walking with a group of children, dark clouds began to gather. She knocked on the door of her house, and when the lady came to the house, she asked to borrow an umbrella. I will return it to you tomorrow, she said. The lady of the house was reluctant to lend her good umbrella to a stranger. But she remembered she had one in the attic. One of the spines was broken and it had holes in it, but she gave it to the lady at the door with an apology. The next day, there was another knock at the door. When she opened the door, a man in gold braid stood before her. The queen sent me, he said, with an envelope in his hand, and she wanted me to thank you for the umbrella. The woman was stunned, and then she burst into tears. And here's what she said. Oh, what an opportunity I missed that I did not give her my best. One writer said, there's an attitude prevalent among many today that seems to say, I'll do just enough to scrape by, but nothing more. And even though I'm not willing to do my best, I expect to get whatever I want for whatever I do. In short, I want maximum returns for minimum effort. Tonight, as we discuss, give God your best. I only want to mention two things. In the first place tonight, I want to mention that giving God our best helps the church. And giving God our best helps the church in three ways that I want to mention in your hearing Tonight, number one, giving God our best helps the church numerically. You see, the church is going to benefit from that kind of an attitude because giving our best encourages others to obey the gospel. One of the most intriguing sections of Scripture, in my mind, is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Here you are introduced to a woman who is married to a non-Christian man. The indication of the wording in the original seems to indicate that not only is he not a Christian, he's openly antagonistic to Christianity. And she goes home to that man every day, and Peter says, now here's what you do. You submit yourself to your husband. And what is the goal of this woman? She wants her husband to obey the gospel. 
And Peter says that he will not allow the preacher to come over with the visualized Bible study series, CD or DVD. He will not allow someone to take the Tisdale charts and go through them with him. He will not engage in the open Bible study. He just won't listen. And yet Peter says, you live before him and you submit yourself unto him. That even if any be not one with the word, and the New King James got this latter part correct here, he may be one without a word. Now, wait a minute. We want this man to obey the gospel. That's right. Well, don't you understand that it takes teaching him the gospel in order for him to obey the gospel? Understand that? But he won't listen. Now, pray tell, how in the world am I going to teach him or is she going to teach him the gospel when he won't listen to the gospel? That even if any not be one with the word, he may be one without a word. Now here's how you get it done. By beholding. And that word carries with it the idea looking to investigate, to examine. You see, he may not listen, but he has to look. By beholding your chaste behavior, coupled with respect, fear. What are you going to do? I'm going to live before that man every day in such a manner that though he will not listen, every time he looks, he sees an example of what the gospel will do to somebody. And when he is openly antagonistic, instead of returning in turn, he sees an example of what the gospel will do to somebody in their lifestyle. And if he won't listen, if there's any hope to win him, it'll be by what he sees. I can put names on that. I preached at a place one time for eight and a half years. We had a man there that attended every service unless he was sick. Every time the doors were open, he was there more faithfully than some who claimed to be Christians, but he wasn't. The man before me had been there five years, and the man before him had been there nine years. Now, in base 10, if math is still math, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 22 years. He had never obeyed the gospel. Not long before I was moving from that place, 7 o'clock in the morning, my phone rang. And he said, I want you to meet me at the church building. I want to be baptized into Christ. He didn't even tell his family. And so I baptized him into Christ. And immediately the questions came. Now, this man's been coming for 22 years and every preacher that's been here has talked to him about his soul and tried to work with him. What did you say that finally got through? I said, I don't think I said anything. I think that sermon he's been living with all these years finally got through. Now that's what it's all about, folks. We'll help others obey the gospel when we give our best. And then giving our best encourages some to be restored. In Galatians 6 and verse 1, Paul said, Brethren, if any man be overtaken in any trespass, ye who are spiritual, if you mark in your Bible, 
Restore such an one in the spirit of gentleness, taking heed to thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now I want you to observe here, here's a man overtaken in a fall, overtaken in a trespass. Is there any hope for him? Yes. Because there are groups over here who are called spiritual. What are they? They're individuals who to the very best of their ability are living for God every day and they're going to seek that individual to bring him home. I tell you folks, every, every accountable being in this building tonight is one temptation away from apostasy. And if I apostatize and fall away from God, I want somebody to come after me. I don't want to be a topic of discussion in somebody's meeting where they talk about he's no longer here and we wish he'd come back and all this kind of stupidity. I want somebody to come after me. See, Luke 15 says that the shepherd lost one sheep. That's 1% loss. But he left the 90 and 9. Now, not as the song suggests, in the fold. He left them in the wilderness where they were susceptible to attack because one sheep was that important. If I'm that one sheep, I want you coming after me. Don't talk about I'm gone. And don't talk about maybe one day you'll come see about me. Come get me. And when I give my best as the spiritual, we'll be restoring those who can be restored and the church will be helped numerically. Giving our best will help the church in the second place financially. You see, giving our best encourages others to give. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2, 3, and 5, Paul gave to the Corinthians an illustration of the Macedonians. Now the Macedonians were very poor people. Paul is taking up a collection for poor saints in Judea. And here are the Macedonians who really probably could use some help themselves. Paul said, begged, besought us. They begged us to be able to give toward the poor saints in Jerusalem. And Paul said, let me tell you how they accomplished that. Out of deep poverty, their liberality overflowed because they first gave themselves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. And Paul said, I want to tell you something. When he wrote 2 Corinthians 9, 4, he said to you Corinthians, now you get your contribution together. Because when I come, if I bring with me some of the Macedonians, and you're not ready like you ought to be, when you are blessed with abundance, I'm going to be put to shame, and you're going to be put to shame, because they're going to be standing folks right here who needed help, and out of that need, begged to give. Now you tell me that won't encourage me? A lady in a Bible class discussing giving one's best said, When I get my dollar bill, I select the best looking one I have. That attitude will raise the contribution. Giving one's best will benefit the church spiritually. You see, giving my best brings growth. The thing I have heard over and over about the brother who died a little while ago was how much he studied his Bible. 
And the things Brother Sid prayed and remembered about him could never have been accomplished if he were not a Bible student. And when you are a Bible student, you will grow. It starts when you become a Christian. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. You desire. You earnestly desire. You long for the sincere milk of the Word in order that you may grow thereby unto salvation. And you'll go on growing by adding the graces of 2 Peter 1, 5-11. through 11. They'll abound or overflow in your life and an entrance will be supplied unto you into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you in your growth will encourage others to grow. The best elder under whom I've ever served was a man who did not have a high school education. And he languished about that. And his ignorance would show. He would sometimes try to use a big word that he couldn't pronounce and didn't really understand its meaning. He wanted so badly to be educated. But he knew the Bible better than any elder under whom I've ever served. Now you let us get in an elders meeting and they invited, invited me to come when I really wanted to be at home. And I'd sit there and they'd look at one another for a while and they'd talk at one another for a while and then finally everything would get quiet. One of them would look at the other one and say, well, let's just don't sit here and look at one another. Let's do something. And that'd go on for a while and he wouldn't say a word. And then when all that had run its course, he'd tell us what the Bible said about it. Now, as far as he was concerned, the Bible said it, and that settled it. And he came to me one day very discouraged. He said, you know, the members go talk to other elders, but they don't come talk to me. And they'll go discuss things, and it'll come up in an elders meeting that somebody said this, that, or the other. They don't come talk to me. I said, you want me to tell you why they won't come talk to you? He said, yeah, I'd like to know that. I said, they already know what you're going to tell them. They're hunting somebody that will let them do what they want to do. They know what you're going to tell them. You're going to tell them what the Bible says. He and another elder went to see an unfaithful member one night, and the next day the other elder came by the office. I want to tell you what went on last night. I said, okay. He said, if there's a scripture in the Bible that applies to those folks that he didn't quote to them last night, I don't know what it would be. And that's the only way you're going to restore an unfaithful Christian. You're going to have to restore his love for the Word of God and his respect for its authority. So giving our best will help the church. In the second place tonight, I want to look at some areas in which we should give God our best. And I want to preface this by saying this. Lord willing, I'm going home in the morning. But these truths will stay right here. And if what I'm about to tell you is the truth of God, it'll meet us in judgment. If it's my opinion, you can do with it as you please. But let's look at some areas. Have you ever wondered why 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 to 7 is in your Bible? Have you ever wondered why God gave what we call qualifications for elders? And here's the reason. God didn't want just anybody leading his people. That's been the truth all the way through the patriarchal age. It was the truth all the way through the mosaical age. And it's true in the Christian age. 
God wanted elders leading His people. Well, who are elders? They are men who through their lifestyles have proven that they give God their best. You see, they are to be about their work of leading, of pastoring, of overseeing. We expect our elders to make decisions. That's about all we pray for, isn't it? Bless our elders in the decisions they're going to make. We need to start praying, God, help our elders learn how to be pastors. Help them learn how to get out among the sheep and know the sheep and know them so well that when one wanders off, number one, they know it immediately and they go after that individual. God wanted elders who give their best. Brethren, I tell you tonight, congregations make a mistake when they appoint men as elders who are not qualified. And congregations will suffer for years as a result of that. But I want to tell you tonight that when a congregation appoints men who meet those qualifications and continue to do so in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, a congregation could not be more blessed. And that congregation will be blessed for years to come. Elders need to give their best to God. Deacons are to be men who have shown by their lifestyle their willingness to give their best. It's interesting that right after the qualification for elders, you have the qualifications for deacons. 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. I reckon why that is. Well, this eliminates appointing a man, a deacon, because he's the most popular fellow in the congregation, or because he's kin to some prominent family in the congregation, or because I like him. And so many times our deacons get the idea that their whole responsibility is materially centered. Because generally we have them doing material things, physical things. But listen, the background for any work in which a deacon engages is spiritual. He's engaging in that work in order that someone can learn the truth or be restored to the truth. That's why somebody has to keep this building up. So we can use it to preach the gospel. That's why somebody has to fix things that break. So we can use them in preaching the gospel. That's what this thing is all about. And when you have deacons that abide by these qualifications... You have men who are serving and working. And when you watch them, figuratively speaking, the dust is being kicked up by their feet as they go to do their work. And that's the picture that's involved in that word, diakonos. On those old dirty roads, they weren't paved. And when the deacon be on his way to work, he's kicking dust up. That's the idea. There's your picture of a deacon. Teachers need to be people who give their best. I want to give you a secret tonight. You ever wondered what this congregation will be like in 20 years? In 50 years if the world stands? I want to give you the secret tonight to ensure that there will be a sound congregation right here, Lord willing, in however how many years. One way to do it. Ground your members in the truth. In 2 Timothy 2 and 2, Paul said the things that thou hast learned of me among many witnesses. The same commit thou to faithful men, 
who shall be able to teach others also. It is so interesting that when you read Psalm 78, verses 6 to 8, that the psalmist encourages the nation of Israel to teach that generation about the works of Jehovah. And I want you to look with me at what the psalmist said. He said, I want you to do this in order that the generation to come might know them, even the children that shall be born, who should arise and tell them to their children that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Now here's what the psalmist said. When I teach my children the Word, and they teach their children the Word, and they teach their children the Word, not only will they not forget the commandments of Jehovah, they'll keep them. But let me show you what happens, the psalmist says, if you won't do that. And might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. You know what that passage says? Parents are to teach their children. There's nothing we can do in this church house that will undo in three meetings a week what parents are doing 24 hours a day. Nothing. And God said to those of us who bring children into this world, I'm giving you the responsibility to teach them my word. Now I'm indebted to men and women who dedicate themselves to publicly teach the Word of God. Every class offered by a congregation serves to help people live for God when they are staffed with qualified teachers who give their best to God. These teachers are prepared. They are prayerful. They are enthusiastic. They are in class on time. They encourage their students to love God and to love His Word, and they make lasting impressions on the hearts of boys and girls and men and women. Many men have been encouraged to preach the gospel because they sat in a good adult Bible class. We need teachers who will give their best and help their students to do the same. Students should give their best to God in the Bible classes. Every student ought to come to class prepared and interested. Acts 17.11 gives us the attitude. These in Berea were more noble than they in Thessalonica. What made them such? The New King James says more fair-minded. They received the word with all readiness of mind and examined the scriptures day by day to see if the things were so. We we have this thing backwards. It's not the teacher's job to establish the interest. It's the student's job to bring the interest so the teacher can satisfy the knowledge. And so many times we say to teachers, now, you need to create interest in this class. It's, It's impossible. Parents need to create the interest in their children in the class, but the children need to come prepared. And I'll tell you how to get it done. Let the parents set the example in the adult class. Let the boys and girls see mom and daddy can hardly wait to get to class. They're talking about what they're going to study in class. They're reading their lesson during the week. They're doing their study during the week. 
If it's that important to mom and daddy, it ought to be that important to me. That's the way to get it done. And children come to give their best in the Bible class and they look forward to those classes. I want to be very careful here. There's only one time that I will ever promote children running in a church building. That's when they're running because they're so excited to get their Bible class. They won't hear a word from me about that. Charles Osgood made some interesting observations when he wrote the following. There once was a pretty good student who sat in a pretty good class and was taught by a pretty good teacher who always let pretty good pass. He wasn't terrific at reading. He wasn't a whiz-bang at math. But for him, education was leading straight down a pretty good path. He didn't find school too exciting, but he wanted to do pretty well. And he did have some some trouble with writing, and nobody had taught him to spell. When doing arithmetic problems, pretty good was regarded as fine. Five plus five needn't always add up to be ten. A pretty good answer was nine. The pretty good class that he sat in was part of a pretty good school. And the student was not an exception. On the contrary, he was the rule. The pretty good school that he went to was there in a pretty good town. And nobody there seemed to notice he could not tell a verb from a noun. The pretty good student, in fact, was part of a pretty good mob. And the first time he knew what he lacked was when he looked for a pretty good job. It was then, when he sought a position, he discovered that life can be tough. And he soon had a sneaking suspicion pretty good might not be good enough. The pretty good town in our story was part of a pretty good state, which had pretty good aspirations and prayed for a pretty good fate. There once was a pretty good nation, pretty proud of the greatness it had, which learned much too late, if you want to be great, pretty good is in fact pretty bad. Students need to give their best. We need to give our best to God in Christian living. Each one of us. I want to mention two areas particularly. In Titus 2, 11 and 12, God's grace instructs us to the intent that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, that's the idea of seriously, and righteously and godly in this present age or world, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of the great God and of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a people zealous of good works. You see, as Christians who are giving their best, we'll be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding. Remember, boys and girls, that means overflowing in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I believe in our Christian living, we need to give our best in the way we dress. Paul showed that when one gets the inside like it ought to be, the outside will take care of itself. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15, the emphasis is not on how short, how long, how tight, how loose, how low, how high. 
The emphasis is on adorning ourselves on the inside with godly attitudes and thinking. And when I do that, I've dealt with the outside. And I will in no wise wear anything that would cause, number one, undue attention. That was the idea there of overdressing. And certainly, I wouldn't think about underdressing. When it comes to our worship service, the old idea, and you see if you remember this kind of thing, of wearing our Sunday best. And have you ever heard that terminology? Now, you don't play in those clothes. Those are your Sunday clothes. Now, you have your, we used to say, Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. You wear your very best then. Now, you have your tattered, dirty, patched, playing clothes, but you have your best for the worship service. When, when that's our attitude, then Sunday best won't be out of place, will it? Until recently, in our society, see if you've heard this terminology, people dressed up to go to worship, to go to weddings, to go to funerals. Do you remember a flap, no pun intended, being made over a sports team wearing flip-flops to the White House? Some folks thought that wasn't the kind of dress you would wear to the head of a state or a nation. But I have observed in the last few years I've observed people dressed at worship, at weddings, and at funerals in a way that said, this is not a special occasion to me. I didn't pull for a college football team when I was in school. I was out preaching in a little place. And the fellow there was a big football fan, college football fan. So one night he invited us over to his house to watch a pretty important college football game in that state. And we went. First, I'd never really paid any attention to it. He had on a houndstooth hat in the house. And the man who made that popular said his mama taught him to take your hat off in the house. But he had that on the whole time. And man, when that team would do well, though, he got excited. And when they didn't, he got excited. But I'd never really gotten excited till he got excited and he got me excited so I started pulling for that team. And I preached in another place in that state and our, our high school quarterback was pretty good. He was a good Bible student in my Bible class and he walked on to that university to play football and when he didn't really make the team then he'd, he'd go and he'd get tickets and I was a young preacher with two small children and he would call me and invite me to come to football games. Boy, that was exciting. And I, I was going to get to sit in the student section. Boy, you talk about something I thought was way up there. And we were going to homecoming one year. Man, I dressed to go to a football game. And I got over there, and my jaws dropped. The boys had on suits and ties. The girls had on long dresses and high heels to go sit outside on dirty bleachers at a football game. And I began to realize they're wearing better clothes to that football game than they wear back home in worship to God. And I didn't understand that. And I'll be honest with you. I don't understand it 33 years later. 
a Christian who is a priest of God should be careful in living his Christian life. I want to read you something I came across. It was interesting to me. A survey of 275 patients in dermatology offices in San Jose in Fremont, California, appeared in the April 2002 edition of Archives of Dermatology. And it showed that patients preferred, now I'm quoting, their doctors to dress formally and not show up in blue jeans and sandals. A carefully dressed provider might convey the image that he or she is meticulous and careful said the researchers. Professional appearance helps instill a sense of trust and patients expect doctors to convey professionalism. We need to give God our best in our Christian living in the way we talk. In Colossians 4 and verse 6, Paul said that our speech should be always with grace, seasoned with salt. That word grace refers to that which bestows or occasions pleasure, delight, or causes favorable regard. You see, Matthew twelve thirty four says that in order to be able to speak with grace, I have to have grace in my heart. Our words are to be seasoned with salt. Mark chapter 9 and verse 50 shows that that's the character of the Christian. One writer observed that you should let all your conversation be such as may tend to exemplify and recommend Christianity. A harsh method of proposing or defending the doctrines of Christianity only serves to repel men from those doctrines and from the way of salvation. How we talk can make a great impression upon people for good. We need to give God our best in our attitudes. In Matthew 5, 1 to 12, Jesus gives, in my judgment, in the Sermon on the Mount, the whole Sermon on the Mount, the background for understanding the New Testament. In Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12, the background attitudes that have been true in principle from the very beginning. If you will study very carefully the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians, and you will observe there the attitudes that Paul introduced to the Philippians, you will uncover there the kind of attitude that will help you and will help me give our best. You see, my attitude determines how I approach my assignments in the kingdom of God. When I'm asked to do something, how do I approach that? A man by the name of Phidias was born in Athens in 490 B.C. And according to the connoisseurs, he became the greatest artist of antiquity. It is recorded that in the brilliant career of this great sculptor, on one occasion, he was carving a statue of Diana to be placed in the Acropolis. Those who watched him said he seemed to be taking an unusually long time on the back side of the head. He was meticulously bringing out every strand of hair as far as possible. When someone remarked, that figure is to stand a hundred feet high with its back to the marble wall. Who will ever know what details you're putting there? Phidias' reply was, I will know, and kept on meticulously working on the hair. Surely this kind of attitude should characterize me 
as a child of God. We need to give God our best in our worship of Him. In John 4 and 24, God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. We are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in worship. I'm a country music fan. I mean real country music. But cattle call is not an authorized song in worship. I'm to pray to God through the Christ in worship, Acts 2 and 42. I am to preach or listen to the Word of God, Acts 2.42, in worship. I am to proclaim the Lord's death till He come in every Sunday observance of the Lord's Supper, Acts 20 and verse 7. And I am to give as I have been prospered and as I have purposed. And it's interesting that the New American Standard Translation got it right here on every first day of the week. I need to do what God told me to do. And my behavior ought to be its best during the worship service. I need to remember the Lord's Day is a special day. And the worship services are special times. We need to give attention to every detail of our worship. I remember when I was a boy, we had a red-headed woman that sat about midway of the church house. And there were a group of us young people, and occasionally we'd all sit together. And occasionally, our minds would not be in the worship service, and we might whisper or pass notes. And if that went on more than maybe two or three seconds, from about midway of that auditorium we heard, now we we knew if number two came, Some of us might not live to return to the evening service. That's all it took. I buried my mama in March. And when one of those girls came through the receiving line, whose mother that was, I said, Judy, do you remember? And she just started laughing. She said, it didn't take but one, did it? You see, we were taught to behave. I remember a young girl, and I always sat on the second row. And we took notes. When I prepare sermons now, I have sermon notes. I took it as a teenager. One night we had a guest speaker who was using the sheet chart, and he had a long wood pointer. And during that preaching, one of us missed something. I don't remember which one it was. But we looked over to the other's notes to try to catch up our notes, and I know he thought we were either writing notes and not paying attention, but he hit the the lectern with that wood stick. And we cut our eyes at one another, and our eyes commiserated. We may not live to be back tomorrow night. You see, I ought to be on my best behavior when I come to the worship. Our children need to learn how to sit still and pay attention when they're old enough to do so in the worship. I'll tell you what my wife does. When she teaches the little boys and girls, she'll give them a list of the Bible books when they're old enough to read. And she'll say, now, when Mr. James calls out one of these books, you circle it. And those little boys and girls are listening. And boy, I say that word, and you'll see them. You'll see those circles going. At services, man, here they come. Be like, I want to show you how many I got today. You know what you can do with that? When they get old enough to write, and they can listen and write at the same time, they can circle the book and put the chapter beside it. And then when they progress a little further, they can put the book, circle the book and put the chapter and verse beside it. 
And then when they progress a little further, they can write a note about what was said on that verse. And before long, they have built for themselves a tremendous filing system of Bible material so that when they become a Bible class teacher, they have resources at their disposal from gospel preachers they've heard who may be dead and have been dead. But they're still benefiting from that activity. Only eternity will tell what good can be accomplished with proper worship etiquette. Sometimes we sing, give of your best to the Master. I can't give my best if I'm not a Christian. That means that I have studied my Bible very carefully and determined from the evidence that I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John 8, 24. And that's caused me to change my mind about living in sin on purpose. I don't want to live that lifestyle anymore. I've changed my mind about that, and from now on, on purpose, I'm going to do my very best to do what God told me to do. That's called repentance, and God commands it of all men everywhere, Acts 17.30. I'm going to confess with my lips that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Acts 8.37. And I'm going to be buried in baptism to have my sins washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, Acts 22.16. And I'm going to be raised from that watery grave to walk a new life, Romans 6 and verse 4. And as a Christian, I'm going to give God my best until I die or until I give my life before compromising the truth. Revelation 2 and verse 10. You see, the give it your best attitude is well worth the effort. That is needed. If you can't be a pine on the top of the hill, be a scrub in the valley. But be the best little scrub by the side of the hill. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a bush, be a bit of the grass, some highway happier make. If you can't be a musky, then just be a bass, but the loveliest bass in the lake. We can't all be captain. We've got to be crew. There's something for all of us here. There's big work to do and there's lesser to do and the task we must do is near. If you can't be a highway, then just be a trail. If you can't be a sun, be a star. It isn't by size that you win or you fail. Be the best of whatever you are. While we stand and encourage you.